The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And so today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, I would encourage you to grab a Bible. There's a few in the back. If you need one, uh, you can raise your hand or you can go back and get one. But we're just going to open God's Word and work our way through this very familiar story. But I want to start off by saying that one of my favorite shows in a former lifetime was the show called Fear Factor. I mean, it, it was sometimes really gross and sometimes so shocking uh, just it, it just draws you in at the things that people are afraid of, that we all struggle with fear. And what we find in this account, in the longest, most detailed chapter in the Old Testament, given over to a battle scene, is we see a fear factor at work. And a lot of times when you hear this incredibly important and familiar passage preached. It's like, go be like David. Banish your fears. Like, suck it up, man up, and stop being afraid and go kill the giants in your life, whatever that giant may be. And I think that if we're honest, most of us, myself included, uh, would identify not so much with David and not so much with Goliath, but with the people of God who in this story are shrinking back in fear. I mean, we want to be courageous like David. We, we do. We, we desire to be zealous for the glory of God. We desire to be bold in our courageous evangelism. Uh, we desire to speak up for Christ. Uh, we desire not to be ruled by the fear of man. But the reality is often we are. I mean, just notice how often we stress when we don't get that many likes on our social media posts. Or when we labor faithfully, whatever context-wise, and we don't get the pat on the back, that word of affirmation. We, we cooked the ultimate meal and nobody even seemed to comment on how delicious the meal was. You see, fear is really where we land ourselves in this passage. So I would say to you as we walk through this very familiar story, uh, don't identify with Goliath. He is often depicted as your worst fear. Don't just identify with David either because that will lead you into a certain kind of just man up and do better. And if you uh, were to rush into a burning building, building to rescue someone and you have an adrenaline rush, that may get you through that, that adrenaline courage. But if you are facing a dehabilitating illness or chronic relationship month after month, year after year, you need something more than manning up and doing better. As the frightened, sometimes, people of God, what we need is a representative champion. And what I see here, what the Holy Spirit gives us in 1 Samuel 17, is not just an example of how to be courageous, but rather He gives them a champion and a Savior. 
a representative. He doesn't deal with their fears through an inspirational pep talk. He deals with their fears through substitution. You see, David doesn't come to the Israelites here and say, just do exactly as I do. He doesn't say, in just the same way I'm shedding the armor of King Saul, you shed it too. In the way I rush the Philistine giant, so you rush your Philistine giants. But rather what we see here is that David is a champion, a deliverer, and a representative for his entire nation. What we have to understand here, this is so important, is that David is a type of Christ. There are many examples of that in 1st and 2nd Samuel throughout the scriptures we see that Christ will will rule on the throne of who forever? Uh, The throne of David. You see, it is David's son and David's Lord that all of scripture points to, even here in 1st Samuel chapter 17. We're familiar with the Hebrews Hall of Faith and we're told that there are many witnesses, a cloud of witnesses, including Abraham, including Moses, and including David. But then in chapter 12 of Hebrews, we're said, fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter, the conqueror of our faith. So where I want us to go, and it's going to take us a while to get there because we're going to walk through the text, and it's a long chapter. But I want you to put it down and just keep it in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it and then develop it. This is our teaching point. May Christ's victory, that is the son of David, deepen our devotion to Christ and ignite our courage for Christ. With that introduction, let's just notice that the setting in verses 1 to 3 reminds us that at this point in Israel's history, they had two enemies, including the Philistines. They were like a giant chronic migraine headache to the Israelites. They uh, were always ready to pick a fight. And so in this particular scene, you have a canyon about a mile wide with a ravine at the bottom. And on one side is the army of Israel and on the other is the Philistine army. And so the battle lines are clearly drawn Now we see the problem in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A cubit was approximately 18 inches, a span about nine. And so this made Goliath about nine feet, nine inches tall. He was, uh, if he was flat-footed under a basketball goal... His uh, head would be touching the net. And if he stood on his tippy toes, his head would scrape the rim. I mean, he is huge. And he is decked out to fight. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, 125 pounds. That's a heavy jacket. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, 
Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, if you jump down to verse 16, notice this went on twice a day for 40 days. There's a standstill. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. One of the things that Israel teaches us that we find in our own hearts is that we are prone to look at the outward appearance. Back in chapter 16 and verse 7, when Samuel went to anoint the future king of Israel, seven boys lined up from the house of Jesse. And the Spirit of God through the prophet Samuel says that God doesn't look as man looks or see as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so if you're an Israelite, you are looking at a giant. You are looking at the outward appearance, and it is overwhelmingly big to you. Someone has written a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. When people are big and God is small. I think as parents, we, uh, we wrestle with fear and the outward appearance when we want to have that Facebook picture-perfect family. I think as aging adults, we grow increasingly enamored with our outer man as we find uh, aging setting in. We become fearful. Parents, we become fearful for how our kids are going to turn out. And so we engage in what is sometimes called helicopter parenting. It's parenting that's based on fear. Absolutely. Do we need to take care of our bodies as we age? For sure. Do we need to be cautious with our kids and protective? Absolutely. But a lot of times... We become dismayed by things when people are big and God is small. That seems to be the Israelites' problem. However, there was one Israelite that had a big God. Let's see who he is. In verses 12 and 15, we find that about 10 to 15 miles away from this battle scene in a little town was a family with eight boys. David, the youngest of the family at this time, knew nothing of what was going on. Just 15 miles away, he was just doing his thing. And his dad, Jesse, uh, had three older sons that were in battle. Verse 14 says, The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. We know from prior uh, narrative that 
David had a job as the palace musician when King Saul had a difficult week. Otherwise, he was out tending the sheep. Verse 9 or 17. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers and take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David's assignment is to take some quarter pounders and with cheese and large fries to his brothers and basically to get a report for dad about how his three older boys are doing. Verse 23, as David talked with his brothers, behold the champion, remember David's just coming in, he's not looking to pick a fight, he's just being a message boy for dad. Behold the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. King Saul had an incentive plan for anyone who would fight and defeat Goliath. He would make him rich, plague him with his daughter, and make him tax-exempt. All of that went right over David's head. He was concerned for Yahweh's glory. Yahweh is the proper name for God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. His focus, notice, is entirely different than his fellow Israelites. Look at verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And tis this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Notice what really irked David. This man was insulting and mocking and slandering Yahweh and God's chosen people. Now we're introduced to the older brother syndrome. Any older brothers here? Verse 28, now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when David, little runt brother, little shepherd boy David, spoke to the men and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, has your older sibling ever talked to you like this? Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the desert? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, that you have come down to see the battle. See the problem? When you step up with zeal for God's glory, you get understood, even by family members sometimes. Those who are closest just say, just go with the flow. A man's got to do what a man's got to do. Just live with it. What was David's response? Verse 29. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him as before. Verse 31, when the words 
which David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight for him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And so David hangs his head and he kicks the ground and says, You're right. I can't do it. I guess he'll just go on to find the armies of the living God. Is that what the text says? No. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and Yahweh be with you. Now this next part is humorous. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Here's Saul, a 52 long, trying to outfit David, who is a 36 regular. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now just look up here for a second. How many do you think in the Philistine army are betting on David at this point? Let me see a show of hands. How many think that anyone from the Israeli army is betting on David at this point? Think about it. You have a runt versus a giant. A spear and a sword versus five smooth stones. And a slingshot draped out of your back pocket. You have a shepherd boy who's probably, get this, 16 to 20 years old. He's probably a teenager. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bear in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air, to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You see how David had a big God, a big vision of God on the backside of the desert under the moon. 
Think about this. Goliath looked at David and he said, you don't stand a chance, boy. David looked at God and told the, the Goliath, you don't stand a chance. And then in verse 46 and 47, we get to the punchline that the Holy Spirit points us to as we think about the plot of this battle scene ramping up to the climax. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand and I will strike down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth. Here's the punchline, listen. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hands. That's the climax of the story right here. 45, 46, and 47. Everything else is ice cream afterwards. Look at what happens. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shiram as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. I love this next statement. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Think about this. David, every night when he goes to bed, he could see that a sword and the spear is a reminder of what God had done. We're going to stop there with the story. And now we're going to go back to our preaching point because I believe that chapter 17 points us not to go kill the Goliaths in our life, not to man up and go be like David primarily, but as the frightened people of God to run to the son of David, Christ, as our conqueror, our king, our deliverer, our representative. So let's think of four ways that this story reminds us of Jesus. How David reminds us of his descendant Christ, the Messiah. And by the way, the first, as you think about these things, I believe that the way for us who struggle with fear, anybody here like me struggle with fear? <laughs> man, fear spikes in my 50s. I was like, man, you're thinking, you know, in your late 50s, you got this thing nipped in the bud. It's still a battle, isn't it? 
all kinds of things that are unsettling and we get distraught and bent out of shape and God shrinks and people get big. Circumstances get ginormous. And the courage leaves us. And so I think as we learn from David who spent time alone, here's a teenage lad who had a big God. And I believe that as we look at this through the lens of his descendant Jesus in the gospel, we can know something of what John Newton, the hymn writer, penned in Amazing Grace. This is one of my favorite lines in that well-known hymn, probably known by most Americans. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Isn't that good? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, to be in awe of God." Oh, Lord, the psalmist says, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are to be feared. I think that's Psalm 131 and 2. You see the beauty of that? The fear of the Lord. How do we grow in big God theology and small people? It's through the gospel. It's through grace. God's unmerited favor in the descendant of, of David. So four ways. Number one, he was despised by men. David was uh, told by his oldest brother, you're a pain. Go back to your stinky sheep. Saul said, you're green. You're just a youth. This man of war, Goliath, he's been fighting since he was a youth. Goliath looked at him and he said, you're puny. Think about the ways, just some of the ways that we see that in Christ. He came unto his own, the Jews, Christ did. John 1.12 says his own did not receive him. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Here's Jesus of Nazareth. It's like saying the prophet, the one of whom all the prophets of the Old Testament speak, Came out of Van Horn, Texas. That's probably a little far for you hill country folks, but if you're in El Paso, you're like, can anything good come out of Van Horn? It's about an hour and a half this side of El Paso on I-10. There's just nothing there. Kind of disdain. Even think about Jesus' own half-brothers and sisters growing up with the perfect God-men. It says for a season they didn't even believe in him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, speaking of Christ, says he was despised and rejected by men. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And yet that one who was despised, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... The stone, verse 7, goes on to say that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. To you who believe Christ is precious, the one who was rejected by his own people. The second way that David foreshadows Christ is the zeal that he had for God's glory. I mean, think about this. David wasn't trying to pick a fight. He was just walking by 
running an errand for dad, hears God's name defied, and he gets righteously angry. He just wouldn't take it. Do you ever know anything of that righteous indignation in your heart? <laughs> Jesus did. Psalm 69 verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, speaking both of David, but then of his descendant Christ, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And in John chapter 2 verses 14 to 17 we see that when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple who had turned the house of God into a scheme for greed, Jesus was righteously indignant and his disciples remembered Psalm 69 verse 9. You know what I, I see here? Is that Jesus, the thing that was weightiest in David, imperfectly and perfectly weighty to Christ was the glory of the Father. You know what I thought? How many times have we watched shows that drag the name of Jesus through the mud and just chew on our popcorn? How many, how many times in, in, in the work environment or family reunion environment or any other environment have we heard God blasphemed, his name graffitied in some way, denigrated, and just said, well, you know, that's just whatever. You know what I'm so thankful for? I, I felt a measure of guilt here. I, I'm so thankful that Christ's zeal for the Father's glory never missed a beat, not for one second. And so when I trust in him, when I run to Christ as my conqueror and my savior, I am forgiven all of the times that I have not been consumed with zeal for God's holy, righteous name. So grateful for that. Third way he uh, mirrors Christ, David mirrors Christ, is he represents his people. It was a custom apparently that the Philistines were familiar with, that rather than both armies going into battle together, they would send out one. And it would be like, if our guy wins, you serve us. If your guy wins... You know, it's the other way around. Now, they didn't follow that, if you follow the story. But it's representative warfare. Instead of a whole bunch of people dying, it's like one versus one, mano a mano. And so we Savior. He is our champion. He is our advocate. He is our defense attorney. 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2 says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ the righteous one. And so if our representative triumphs over our enemy, death and sin and Satan, then we go in his victory. If he represents us in the courtroom of heaven, then we, everything that he gained through his victory is imputed to us. He is our legal representative. See, when David won against Goliath, his people won. He wasn't just fighting for them. He was fighting as them. You know, when you think about that show Fear Factor and you study what people fear the most, people fear dying. Here's the beauty. Christ went into death. 
David only went into the shadow of death. Christ went all the way. He went into death on our behalf. And Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, He did that so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here's the beautiful news. Redemption family. Christ, our representative, he conquered our worst fear. Aren't you thankful for that? We can stare death in the face. I'm not saying that the process isn't incredibly stressful. But we have hope through the resurrection of Christ. He cut off the head of death. He removed the stinger from the bee sting of death. Oh, death. Paul said, where is your sting? The grave robber has triumphed. He has cut off the head of death is our representative. And finally, another way that David is a picture of Christ is he conquers through weakness. Back in chapter 16, we alluded to this very briefly. When God told Samuel to go to the house of Jesse and to anoint the next king of Israel, he had rejected Saul as their king. All the boys line up. And the Lord indicated to Samuel, the future king isn't here. And so he says to Jesse, is this all the boys you have? He says, well, I got one more. He's the runt. I mean, he's out there taking care of the sheep. Well, bring him in. You see, David is so little thought of. He is so young. He is so weak. He has no military training. It is not in spite of his weakness that God uses him to save the Israelites. It is because of his weakness. You see, what the disciples of Christ expected is that God would send a political king who would deliver them from the oppression of the Roman government. And God instead, over and over again, he said, before the coronation, there has to be a cross, which is the most despicable way that a human could be put to death. Not even Roman citizens were allowed to be crucified. You see, it was through the foolishness of the cross that the God-man, the king, the descendant of David, he, through his weakness, would usher in our salvation. He was tortured. He became killable. He took the punishment that we deserve so that when we believe in Jesus, repenting of our sin, God, on the basis of his free unmerited favor, he accepts us as if we are perfect, even though we are sinful, even though we are focused on the outward appearance, even though we struggle with the fear of man. (laughs) What an incredible thing. You see, it doesn't mean that if you embrace Christ as your representative conqueror, as your savior and as your substitute, that all of your debts will be taken care of. Your financial debts will go away. It doesn't mean that you'll get that perfect guy or girl, that 
perfect relationship where you have perfect chemistry. It doesn't necessarily mean that God will heal that estranged relationship or that uh, chronic ailment that you have. He may and he sometimes does. But what God does promise through the sacrifice of Jesus is that that one thing that can destroy you forever, the disease of sin has been healed. The penalty of sin is gone. The Father sees when He looks at you is the perfect, obedient life of Jesus. You see, He conquered through our weakness. And then the gospel becomes the wind in our sails, infusing our courage for Christ. You see, the more devoted we are to Christ, He who is forgiven much, loves much, the more we are consumed with Christ, the more zealous we are for His name. The, the more we are consumed with His reputation and less worried about what people are saying about our reputation, the more we are uh, focused on defending God's name in South Austin and Buda and Kyle and New Braunfels, in the workplace, in family reunions, the less time we're worried about our name, our hearts begin to break for the things that break God's heart. In the words of the psalmist, Psalm 119.53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. I think we do need to be careful here just as a precautionary note as we have come out of the pandemic, a, a year of racism and rioting and political upheaval. A caution here is that someone could listen to this point about being zealous for the name of our God and say, I'm just going to go light a firestorm on social media. I'm just going to light it up for Jesus. Just be careful with that. We're to be Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. As much as possible, we are to live at peace with all men. We're to speak gracious words that fit the occasion. As the world becomes increasingly cynical of Christianity, oh, how we need to press in to a zeal for God's holy name that is anchored in grace. You see, the law came through Moses, but what came through Christ? Grace and truth. Not truth at the cost of grace, not grace at the expense of truth, but the tension of grace and truth. I think another way that it will infuse the gospel, looking away to Christ, the descendant of David, in us is that we will become more dependent on God's resources. You know what I have been so amazed with as I spent a year here at Redemption and eight months now with getting ready to plant Living Hope with an amazing team. Most of them will be here in the second service today. So looking forward to you. Hope you'll get a chance to connect with them between services. We have so many amazing tools, don't we? Yeah, you know, we have, we have a mic system. We, we have all these wonderful tools up on the, the screen. And, and it's an amazing thing that that all can be so useful to making and maturing and multiplying more disciples for Jesus. But we must never forget that we are in a spiritual battle, that we must fight with spiritual weapons, that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. 
And so whatever fear you are facing in this current season of your life redemption, areas where God is small and people are big, whatever that is, do this. Rely on God's word and God's spirit. Rely on God's word and on God's spirit. Sin is great, including the fear of man's sin, but Jesus is stronger. We are weak and focused on the outward appearance, but he is strong. We are prone to cave in to fear, but God's spirit will enable those who are spiritually dead to come alive to Christ. Hasn't that been your story? That there was a time that you were dead to Christ and alive to sin and God opened your eyes so that you could sing these wonderful songs with God's people today. You're alive to God's word. You welcome it. And that person in your mind right now in South Austin, all the way to New Braunfels and beyond both places, that today is alive to themselves and dead to Christ. But God, who is rich in mercy, he can make them alive. Therefore, go in his strength. Be strong in the Lord Jesus and in the power of his might. Whether you're in year one of church planning like Living Hope or finishing up year five like Redemption, as Blair referenced. Whether you're in year one of parenting or you've been walking the parenting pathway for 34 years like my wife and I have. We go forth in his strength, not ours. Are you exhausted in the season redemption of walking with and serving Christ, of worshiping one uh, a working one. Scripture tells us that helping others treasure Jesus is exhausting. Paul said in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, it's hard work, powerfully works within me. You may feel right now, parents, neighbors, that your efforts for courageous evangelism with your kids, with your neighbors, is going nowhere. But God... The battle belongs to the Lord. It's not your strength. It's his strength. It's not your work. It's his work. But it's not just God's spirit. It's God's word. You see, our stones are the word of God. It is God's word that convicts and convinces men of sin, of righteousness and the judgment to come. It is God's word that will open people's eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Those who reject him will now see him as precious. Finally, though, as we allow the good news of Jesus to give us courage, we become more aligned with his agenda. David, I can't imagine how in tune with God he was as a teenager. He said it was that the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel. You see, God in that day got great glory through the destruction of the Philistine army. And sadly, but truthfully, there will be many that will be shut away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of the gospel because they refuse to believe in Christ. But there's also this wonderful thing that God is so patient. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting for people who are alive to their individualism, their materialism, 
all kinds of idols. He's waiting for them. He's pursuing them. He's seeking them. This is what drives us at living hope. This is what drives us at redemption is we want to see us in the pathway of God's work of turning people from darkness to light to see the lost saved, the saved matured, and the matured multiplied to the glory of God. Church, that's our point, to see people in New Braunfels and South Austin make much of God. And I believe that in the coming days and years, we're going to see many people that God will bring into our worship, into our small group, into our normal rhythms of life that today are hurting and lonely and broken and cynical. And the son of David, Christ, is going to bring them along with his sons and daughters to glory. He's going to save them. And you know what? He's going to use you. He's going to use me. Some of us are sowers. We just keep faithfully sowing. Some of us are reapers. But God gives the increase. Will you pray with me as the worship team comes?